Thanks for joining me today. You know, often the idea of culture, especially culture at work and within organizations, comes up in conversations. I hear it a lot around, uh, you know, that person just wasn't quite the right fit in our culture here at work. Or culture, you know, our culture here looks like this, or our culture here looks like that. It's just our culture. Sometimes it's an excuse for the way things are. Sometimes it's a it's an attempt to explain some behaviors that we've got in the workplace that are <clears throat> sometimes really good or maybe not so good. There's a lot really been written over the years about culture at work. It's uh, sometimes presented as kind of a vague or foggy reason about why things are the way they are. It's like it's a powerful, uh, invisible, and barely understood force, you know, like gravity or something that uh, explains our actions and maybe even highlights our values. Sometimes people use it as the final argument in a losing debate. Well, that's just the way it is around here. And then folks fold their arms and turn and walk away. There's an underlying assumption kind of in that argument that uh, that culture is unchangeable. So as a, as a leader in an organization, whether you have a position or not, um, understanding the concept of culture is pretty important. Workplace culture is at its really most basic level, a set of individual behaviors that are reinforced by group behaviors. These behaviors are called norms, and they are they're described such as a way of, uh, of identifying what is normal. Norms are what is normal and what is not normal. It's simply the way things really work around here. That's how we actually think about culture, the way things really work around here. Uh, so if I were to invite you over to my house for dinner, we would probably uh, welcome you at the front door and glad to see you with smiles on and shiny faces. And we'd serve you throughout the night and we'd, we'd give you a nice, a nice enjoyable drink or something like that. We'd take your plate away. We'd exchange pleasantries. And, and then we'd wish you well at the close of the evening. But the second time you joined us for dinner, we'd tell you to lose your shoes at the front door and point to the refrigerator and then probably <laughs> probably put you to work. Uh, you know, you'd help set the table or you'd help with the barbecue. You'd Maybe you'd cut the cabbage for the coleslaw um, and you'd certainly help clean up afterwards. Uh, we'd expect you to hang around for scotch and cigars, which, by the way, I'm enjoying right now even as I talk to you. We might ridicule you affectionately if you couldn't stay awake until the wee hours of the night. Um, maybe we'd swap stories and, and tell stories about near misses or talk about strange relatives or drivers of Priuses or something fun like that, because that's how it really works around my family. How does it really work? Your first visit was advertisement. It was marketing. It was aspiration. Your second visit, that's how it really works. That burnt out light bulb that I might have changed before you came over the first time. After you've come over for a while, uh, probably wouldn't even notice it. You know, culture at work is kind of the same way. Uh, it's, it's a description of how it really works around here. Think about that in your workplace. Regardless of how sophisticated and clearly written your policies are, 
and how well you've captured your traditions and your expectations, regardless of how uh, fancy and sharp your web light, website looks uh, or the depth of, uh, of your new employee or orientation. Your culture in the workplace is how it really works. Now, most of the time, culture is accidental. It's been cobbled together, so to speak, over a long period of time. Culture is a set of normal behaviors that had been put in place. And when they were put in place, they were, they were there to solve a problem or to meet a need at the time that they were put in place. Uh, those with the strongest personalities I've noticed or the strongest preferences became the enforcers of those norms or of those normal behaviors. They spoke up when others did not comply and uh, they reinforced them. Um, as time marched forward, uh, and, and even as the impetus of the original behaviors or the cause, I guess, of those behaviors disappeared, the norms, the behaviors themselves, and then the reinforcing norms stuck around. They became the normal way of doing things. That's what I like to call an accidental culture from eight-hour work schedules to locking file cabinets to, I don't know, poorly striped parking lots or noisy conference room chairs, uh, from half-hour lunches to half-planned meetings. The workplace is a messy collection of behavioral relics all stacked together to create a culture. And the older that workplace is, the more of those relics are around. Accidental culture, the way I think about it, is an amalgam of agreements about the way it works around here. Few, if any, of these agreements were put in place really with an eye to long-term impacts. We didn't sit around and say, will this serve us well in five or ten years? We just put them in place. Here's something to think about. During World War II... Many of the islands in the South Pacific really lived on a salty kind of meat-ish canned product called, you got it, Spam. It was, it was a little more nourishing than, I don't know, dirt. <laughs> uh, and it, you kind of have to have an, an acquired taste to enjoy it. But it served a noble purpose. It kept people alive. When, when food was in short supply. But today, the need for spam has really disappeared. Somehow, though, it's still a staple in the diet of many island cultures. Uh, people eat it for breakfast with eggs or for dinner with rice. Um, spam sales globally really have not slackened since World War II. They probably have even picked up in some of the data that I've been able to find. My business partner, Donnie Kitagua, who is a descendant of Guamanian parents, um, he's the executive vice president of our group of companies. Um, he likes Spam. He smiles and, and he laughs and, and he, he eats it with this, with this giddy delight. And I think there might even be a hint of guilt in there, too. He knows it's not good for him, but he still eats it. You know, I, uh, to be honest, admittedly... Um, I also get a little giddy myself when he makes a feast that includes this uh, suspicious substance. <laughs> uh, 
And I really enjoy that salty oddity from time to time. It's not good for me. I know that. No one on the planet thinks spam is good for them, but all of us still choose to eat it. It's possible that your culture has a version of spam in them as well. That is norms, habits, behaviors that were adopted in another time and at that time served a purpose, but they're no longer necessary. Behaviors and habits that slowly erode the health of the organization, but that we just keep on doing because we just like them so much. These spam cans exist in every workplace. Perhaps your spam is allowing somebody to vent their anger openly and to berate uh, a customer or someone in another part of the organization whenever they're frustrated and stupid. Perhaps venting is your favorite can of spam. Maybe your team loves spouting frustration so everyone can hear. Even regardless of all common sense and deep research that <clears throat> outlines the destructive impacts to the individual and to the team, resulting from a culture where venting is accepted, regardless of all that, you still like to do it. So it continues. Perhaps, um, perhaps your spam can is the... Uh, we have it so hard around here. This job is so stressful. Kind of a mantra where individuals think that no one else in this job has it quite this hard. Maybe your spam can is the belief that no one else could do your job. You're indispensable. Maybe you feel like you work harder than those people over there or that someone else over there, well, look at them. They're just staring out the window. They're not thinking. Maybe your spam can is that I work harder than anybody else. Perhaps your spam can is a, maybe it's a mindset that those people up there, over there in management, they're only motivated by numbers. They really don't care about the impact. Um, so you have set up sort of an adversarial uh, relationship with management and, and, uh, and that is your spam can. All of these and maybe, maybe more you can even think of may have been appropriate at some point. Maybe you did work harder at some point than someone else. Maybe your job was at one point an indispensable job and you in it. But now those things are spam. They remain not because you know they're correct and they're good and helpful and powerful, but because you like them. Maybe you just like gossiping about people. Or maybe you just like... Uh, working at the last minute and, and getting everything done at the last possible minute and let the chips fall where they may on the rest of the team. Spam can. So healthy cultures we've discovered over the years are not accidental. Rather, they are intentional. Norms and habits are inspected regularly as a matter of course and intentionally changed to fit our current challenges. The normal behavior and mindset of healthy culture is one of conscious, thoughtful adaptation. The discipline of seeing, evaluating, changing norms actually falls to what I like to call the keepers 
of the culture. Those are most often first-line level supervisors. Not always. Sometimes if you are a person with experience, expertise, proven wisdom, and people look to you, you are a keeper of the culture. If you're a person who says, hey, we take our shoes off in here, or that's not how we do it around here, um, then you are a keeper of the culture, most often organizationally. As I mentioned, that is actually a supervisor. And if you are a keeper of the culture, it is your job to notice and to assess and to address behaviors so that everyone understands this behavior no longer serves us. It no longer serves the mission and it's probably contrary to our values. So if you're one of those keepers of the culture, whether you're a supervisor or someone who has a, a level of experience and expertise that we all look to, <clears throat> you're the one who establishes the norm, probably in the first place, especially if they're new ones, and you enforce those behavioral norms. Again, what is normal? Behavior that we expect around here that's normal, that everyone would raise their eyebrows uh, if, if we didn't do that specific behavior. Um, a norm, for example, in larger society right now, especially in Western cultures, is uh, we, when we used to sneeze, we would just like sneeze into our hand. And we'd sneeze into our hand, see? Uh, well, now that, that has actually changed. We have intentionally said, well, let's see if we can tamp down a little bit on these airborne viruses and airborne bacteria that we sneeze out into space. Let's go ahead and sneeze into our elbow now. Uh, cover your mouth when you sneeze has now been sneezing, turned into sneezing to your elbow. Okay, That's a change in norm. There are folks who are keepers of that norm. So if you're in a group and you sneeze out into space, the person who looks at you and says, what are you, some kind of Neanderthal sneezing to your elbow? Right, That is the keeper of the culture. And they believe this is my culture. If you are one of those keepers of the culture, that's how you think. This is my culture. As the keeper of the culture, your behavior and the behavior that you allow is the culture. It may seem kind of stark or harsh to say this, but what you, as a keeper of the culture, permit, you promote. So if you are one of those keepers of the culture, a supervisor or not, your standard of behavior, that is your habits and that are visible to everyone, your actions, your attitudes, even your disciplines that are sometimes not visible, are the culture. Let that sink in just a little bit. You know, senior leaders in an organization that has any substance to it can set the direction of the organization, but it's, the, it's this keeper of the culture who creates the culture in the, in the beginning and then also keeps the culture on track enforces the culture. Here's a story about somebody who was an off-duty supervisor at a communication center. This is like a 911 center, emergency communication center, down in the state of Arizona. Um, <clears throat> stopped in one day to deliver fresh cookies to the staff, and she overheard a frustrated fire dispatcher complaining about having to stay around an additional two hours at the end of a fairly long and intense shift. Proud of her nurturing skills, this supervisor, who was also opposed to any form of mandatory overtime because it made the employees uncomfortable. 
she doling out her cookies, uh, inserted herself in the conversation and told the dispatcher that, that she should just refuse the work and leave at her appointed time <clears throat> instead of sticking around for the mandatory overtime. She continued by telling the dispatcher that the duty supervisor, the one who was in charge that day, had singled her out and there, there must be others further down the mandatory call-in list who wanted the overtime, so she didn't need to stick around. Unaware of that exchange, the duty supervisor really became livid when the dispatcher gathered up her things and quietly left the building. So I heard this story at a supervisory team meeting about six months after it occurred. All the other supervisors had heard the story, of course, within hours of its occurrence, and they talked among themselves at length about it, but they never addressed the cookie-doling supervisor directly about it. They did nothing about it. The duty supervisor, the one who was on duty that day, simply got frustrated and picked the next person down the list and eventually covered the shift and a little embittered, a little frustrated, just moved on. So as it turns out, this nurturing, cookie-doling supervisor was actually well-known among the supervisory ranks and all of the shifts in this fairly good-sized communication center for quietly subverting the decisions of the other supervisors and occasionally even the decisions of the director with no consequence. It was, as they reported to me, with her in the room talking about this at this meeting. Well, that's just the way she is. They made no eye contact. They looked at me, said it to her, with her sitting in the room. So when I ask if others on the team also quietly contradicted decisions of one another or of their director, their passionate reply was, hell no, we never do that. If we disagree, we disagree to the decider and come to an agreement or enforce it even if we don't agree. So this cookie supervisor, the nurturer, let's call her that, the nurturer's justification when I turned to her and said, so what's up with this for her behavior was twofold. First of all, she said, well, why didn't anyone tell me I wasn't supposed to do that, right? And then she said, well, I have to be liked. If I'm not liked, I can't lead. So I need to make sure that I don't make any of the people I lead angry. <clears throat> so I hope you can see that so many things are wrong with this scenario. The most glaring, of course, problems illustrate this powerful idea that what we permit, we promote. And what we promote turns into our culture. The nurturer actually permitted insubordination. Um, that's a pretty strong word, but that's the only word I can think of to describe what happened there. She permitted, even promoted insubordination. The duty supervisor permitted the dispatcher's stealthy departure <laughs> and never directly addressed it, never even made a note of it. The supervisory team, upon hearing about this event, permitted the subversion of authority and of policy and um, and allowed the inconsistency to develop. So when, when I travel, and I, I love to do it, I love to go to different parts of our country and meet different types of people with all kinds of fun challenges, I often hear the distant airport voice. You know, you've, you've heard this voice before. It kind of entreats us as travelers. 
if you see something, say something. That's kind of timely advice, actually, if you're a keeper of the culture. If you see something and you do not say something, you're saying something. Let me repeat that. If you see something, especially a violation of a norm, and you do not say something, you're actually saying something. What you're saying is, go ahead. It's fine with me. Keep it up, snookums. By the way, here's a cookie. So if culture is how it really works around here, then the challenge and the responsibility of every keeper of the culture, again, that's usually a supervisor, is to create what I like to call an intentional culture. This is a culture in which every norm that is normally expected behavior is exactly what we want them to be. I want to challenge you to think and look around for spam cans in your culture. That is behaviors and norms that that a while ago really were okay. They were put in place to solve a problem, but they're still there. And then, and then once you find them, replace those with intentional behaviors, intentional norms. And remember that the norms also, when you do that, come in pairs. Um, this is a big deal to remember. Um, Pathological optimists forget this on a regular basis. There's the norm itself. That's the expected normal behavior. And then there's the reinforcing norm. They have to come in pairs or the first one has no power behind it. For example, if you say to people, hey, when you come into my house, you take your shoes off. This is a shoeless house. We've got nice hardwood floors. Take your shoes off, right? We all do that. We all agree. This is a shoeless house. Somebody comes over to the house and, and there are shoes stacked around the doorway and the entryway when you come in. There's even slippers for people if it's a cold day or they just want to cover up their feet. And the guest comes in and walks in with muddy boots and no one says anything. No one refers to it. Nobody identifies that that person has their boots on. We roll our eyes and we whisper to each other, look at this doofus. How unaware can he be? That sort of thing. But no one says anything. The first norm that we are a shoeless house really is is we are sometimes a shoeless house if you feel like it that's the real norm but imagine if uh, you come to my house and you wear muddy boots and i don't say anything but my youngest child says hey this is a shoeless house what's your problem well that youngest child is the keeper of the culture and that action is what we call a reinforcing norm if you expect, for example, if there's a norm that you expect people to precisely and accurately fill out their time cards, and if there's a time card or a time sheet or, a, or an, an app for that, which is where most places go, you go online and you fill out your time that you've been working, and they have to do it by Wednesday afternoon in order to receive their paycheck for the following Friday, and they don't do it by Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock, and you have to go chase them down and stay late a Wednesday night or come in early Thursday to process the payroll and it's all late, but you don't really say anything about it, then the norm is that you get to fill out your timesheet whenever you feel like it. Um, however, if if Biff forgets, air quotes around forget, <laughs> which I find fascinating, forgets to fill out his timesheet, um, and you just pay him what he got paid last week, which was actually fewer hours than he had because you didn't have any new numbers. Hey, hey, dude, that's the consequence. You're now going to have to wait till the next pay period to get the money you were actually supposed to get. 
for example. Now that is what's called a reinforcing norm. Fill out your timesheet online by 3 o'clock every other Wednesday. That's the norm. The reinforcing norm is, or you don't get paid. It's the reinforcing norm, which is the, the definition of the culture. If the norm is to arrive at, at work, ready to work 10 minutes before your, say, if you've got a shift, before your shift begins, then it has to have another norm with it that is enacted if I show up one minute before my shift begins or two minutes after. There has to be a consequence and there has to be an outcome for violating the first norm or the first norm really it doesn't relate. This consequence is the reinforcing norm. No matter how small it is, the consequence, the outcome is the reinforcing norm. So all cultures have to have two norms. There's the the norm and the reinforcing norm. And if you want to go about changing intentionally a culture, or at least a part of a culture by changing some of the norms, you have to always consider them in pairs. Consider the idea that everyone shows up late for meetings and you all get frustrated and realize you waste 15 minutes of the first of every meeting. And so then everyone shows up 15 minutes late and then everyone shows up 20 minutes late. And then your hour meeting is just 30 minutes long and how frustrating, which, which happens everywhere I go. So the norm is we show up on time. Everyone talks about it. Everyone says, all right, we're tired of showing up. Everyone's showing up at different times for different meetings. Uh, so if, if the meeting is stated to begin at the top of the hour, you will show up at least one minute before ready to go in that meeting. And everyone agrees, you're right, you're right, we're okay, all right. Uh, mea culpa, everyone says around the table for times that they've been late. We all agree, we all feel better. And then the next meeting, two people show up late and nothing happens except a little bit of passive-aggressive comments. So that means there's no culture change because you only established a norm and not a reinforcing norm. Our reinforcing norm is, hey, at exactly, say, 9 o'clock when the meeting begins, the door's locked. Exactly nine o'clock, the most important item on the agenda will be decided within the first three minutes, and you have no opinion. Or at exactly nine o'clock, when we begin the meeting, if you're two seconds late by that clock over there on the wall or by the clock on our, all, of, all of our phones, you owe 20 bucks to the group on the spot, uh, or a hundred bucks to the group on the spot, something like that. That's called a reinforcing norm. You have to agree when we decide to change a cultural norm to both the norm itself and the reinforcing norm, and you must reinforce, or else there's no culture change. In fact, it's probably worse than if you never addressed it at all. So if the intentional norm of a healthy culture is to ask for a five-minute break, for example, after a particularly frustrating uh, hour that you have worked, uh, rather than just standing up and venting, if that's the new norm, then there has to be a norm that immediately addresses that team member, immediately addresses that team member who, who curses and vents anyway. That's what we mean by norms and reinforcing norms, and that's actually how cultures are intentionally designed. So when a norm is violated, regardless of how small, everyone pivots and everyone will look at you as the keeper of the culture to see what you will do. Imagine folks coming into my house wearing shoes my children would turn and would all the other guests who are shoeless wearing comfortable warm wool slippers. They would all look at me in a flash when Biff walks in with muddy boots to see what am I going to do. So when a norm is violated, everyone pivots and looks at the, 
at the keeper of the culture to find out what the heck are you going to do. So if you ignore it, you've just promoted a new norm. Address it, even inconsistently, and you've injected confusion and favoritism into the mix. Ignore it because you're too busy or you're too tired or you're too happy to address it, and you've created what we call the right mood norm. Ignore it because it just doesn't seem like now is the time to bring it up. You've created the the right timing norm. All right? So, interesting, at a, uh, at a heightened moment of frustration, Daniel, who was a, uh, who was a new supervisor, asked three of the people he supervised why he had to repeat himself over and over while Amy, a seasoned supervisor, had to ask them only once to do things. Well, in a flash of kind of uncomfortable candor, James blurted out, well, you ask us four or five times before we think you mean it. Amy only asks us once, and we know she means business. Well, you get the idea. So, something to think about. A little point of leverage for you to address. Thank you, Archimedes, by the way. Archimedes was that wonderful old-school mathematician who was the guy who said, you know, if you give me the right fulcrum and a long enough lever, I can move the planet, I can move the earth. Um, pretty amazing guy. He's the idea, who wrote, the one who really quantified the concept of leverage. And so I, I, I like to look for points of leverage whenever we're wanting to bring things about. What's the place where we apply just the right leverage and can move, can move whole cultures and can move whole habits and can move even subsections of society? I call that a point of leverage. So think about this as a point of leverage. Think about what norms and behaviors in your workplace just don't work any longer. Even if you like them, even if they feel really good, but you know they just don't work. As a keeper of the culture, you are responsible for changing those norms. If you leave it to somebody who doesn't experience it on a regular basis, maybe even to like the director or the manager, the owner, the CEO, it won't actually happen. If you leave it to the director, to the manager, the supervisor above you, it won't actually happen. This also means that your behavior as a keeper of the culture has to change first. You show up 12 minutes early rather than 10 if the expectation is that everyone else show up 10 minutes early. You don't vent ever if the new norm is that we don't vent. In effect, you take your boots off. You are the keeper of the culture. So you have to be the specific emblem or model of the culture. There's no way around it. What you permit, you promote. So here's your point of leverage. As you, as you understand that, identify one behavior, which I call a norm, normal behavior, that just doesn't work anymore and you want to change it. Announce to everyone it's time to change it and why. Connect it to why. Describe the new norm. That's the new behavior but also describe the reinforcing norm and then make it happen right away. You are the keeper of the culture. If you really want to bring about change, it's up to you. So remember, what you permit, you promote. Thanks for listening to HQ from the School of Leadership. For more, check out dhicks.com. That's D-E-H-I-C-K-S dot com, 
where you'll find other podcasts, resources, and books to help you on your way. Have a great day.